as he feels the undercurrents tug at his legs. He makes eye contact with the man who could be his saviour, but is instead his murderer. Those eyes are the same as they've always been, his entire life. But now, in that split second before he gets sucked under, never to resurface, he sees something different. The coldness. He hadn't noticed the coldness before. Or maybe he had, and he chose not to see. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 121, The Serial Crimes of Pierre Basson. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. Prevention is always better than cure, right? And while we're all either dodging or actively battling the flu bug right now, there's always something around the corner that's waiting to put a damper on our health. Right now, it's the upper respiratory stuff that often comes with winter. Before we know it, it'll be spring and we'll be dealing with allergies again. Every season brings its own challenges, which is why rather than dealing with these issues as they come up, it's probably wiser to go the preventative route and start preparing your body before any of these issues even land. Just Wellness's range of olive leaf extract tinctures are the perfect preventative measure that you can take to start building up your defenses before any seasonal changes. Their wide range of blends include something that's focused on almost any issue you might encounter, and the glowing testimonials on their website speak for themselves. And if you're not feeling like going out into the winter chill right now, you can order any two of Just Wellness's olive leaf blends online at justwellness.co.za and get free delivery right to your front door. Thank you to Just Wellness for their support of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You. Yes, you, are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. Charlene Cornelison, Diavolt Hart, Han, Jana, Jody Schultz, and Ramona Yerschenach for your support on Patreon. 
Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. A few weeks back, I did a crossover interview with Ted Buerta on the podcast. Ted is the author of the new true crime book, Daisy Demelka. If you haven't listened to that episode or read his book, I highly recommend both. Revisiting a few vintage true crime cases in that book and the interview again made me think about how much I really enjoy covering the occasional vintage case on the podcast. Now, some may feel that cases that are sometimes more than 100 years old are no longer relevant, but I found that there are often a ton of similarities between crimes committed a century ago and those committed last week. Although the methods of investigation and often the justice process differ, the killers, the victims, and the motives are very often eerily unchanged. In fact, I sometimes wonder if you took Daisy Demelka, for instance, and transplanted her into 2023, would she be any different? How different would her crimes be? We like to think that we as a species are evolving. Sometimes we look at the more brutal crimes that happen and think we've just completely devolved. We're just getting worse and worse. When we put measures in place in an attempt to stem the flow of crime, we can make a difference. But I think the very base motives, for especially murder, are never going to go away. And in every single generation, there are individuals born that simply fit all the criteria to go down the wrong road. Today's case takes us back 122 years to a time before the technological advances we take for granted now, and really to a place that we probably wouldn't even recognize if we got a glimpse into it. But as far as I can see, everything else remains pretty easily recognizable. Greed, serial murder, buried bodies and an escape from justice, all look very much the same in this 120-year-old version of true crime. In researching this episode, I used a chapter from Rob Marsh's book, Famous South African Crimes, as well as a few other sources from the internet. So let's get into episode 121, The Serial Crimes of Pierre Basson. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Pierre Besson was born in 1880 in the Cape province. He was the oldest of four children and soon made a reputation for himself as a bit of a nuisance in the neighborhood. The police officer that would be part of the eventual investigation into his crimes had been aware of Pierre from when he was a young child. 
When he was 12, Pierre had attacked another child with a knife. Many neighbours had also complained that he'd abused and harmed their pets and the local strays. In a time where the term serial killer was not even coined yet, this type of behaviour may have already been seen as problematic, but not in the way that we would class it today. He also started to steal from shops and neighbours, which caused serious issues with his parents when he denied doing so, and the victims of theft continued to insist that he had stolen from them. When Pierre was 17 years old, his father passed away suddenly. He'd been ill for a short period, but there'd been nothing to prepare the Basson family for the loss of its father and husband. In this time in history, it was extremely difficult for a woman to raise children on her own without a husband. On reflection, those who knew Pierre would say that he seemed to take his father's death rather well. He quickly took up the role of head of the household and almost seemed to relish the power it gave him over his younger siblings. Although life was difficult for the family after the death of Mr. Basson, financially they did not struggle too significantly. There was a life insurance policy that paid out, and it seems to have been this moment in time that paved a new and rather dark path for the oldest Basson boy. Now, I'll address this now, because as I progress in this episode, you're undoubtedly going to wonder about this as I did. Pierre Basson was never linked in any way to his father's death. And although his death will definitely seem even more suspicious to you when I get into the next death linked to this young man, there's really no proof that Mr. Bosson's demise was anything more than natural causes. Of course, we'll never really know. And when that insurance policy paid out, Pierre began to think about the fact that there was money to be made, and perhaps other motives to be accomplished, through the insurance industry. In the wake of his father's death and using some of the capital from that life insurance policy as startup money, Pierre started his own money lending business. Although scenarios like this often evolve out of a well-intentioned start, this one really seems to have started exactly as Pierre Basson had intended to continue. In a time when money lending was not controlled by any type of formal set of laws or overseen by any financial organization, money lenders were pretty much doing their own thing, and only as ethical as they themselves decided to be. One common practice among money lenders when the loan was longer term was to have the indebted person take out life insurance to the value of the loan plus interest and make the money lender the beneficiary. Life insurance was also much easier to take out at that time as well. There were no blood tests, no health checks. You just paid your premium and that was that. Now, most of these life insurances were never paid out because the indebted person would pay off their loan and the insurance would be cancelled at the end of the term. But Pierre Besson saw an opportunity in this. 
when he started giving out loans and backing those loans up with life insurance policies, he didn't just take out enough to cover the loan amount with interest. Instead, he took out enough to cover double, sometimes triple that. Although other moneylenders left it to the clients to take out the insurance and simply asked for proof of it, Pierre did this leg of the transaction himself and often lied about how much the policy was for to avoid making anyone suspicious. And if any of Pierre's clients had seen the amount on the life insurance policies, they most certainly would have had every reason to worry. But for many of them, the realization that they'd been caught in a deadly scheme would come far too late. Pierre started his schemes very close to home, perhaps feeling more in control with people closer to him and wanting to figure out what worked best in the aftermath in a situation he'd have more manipulative value over. In 1901, Pierre suggested to his mother and two brothers that they needed to insure all of their lives so that if any of them passed away, they'd be financially protected. The family agreed and went along with Pierre's suggestion. After all, they'd all been very grateful that their father and husband had had a life insurance policy, so it stood to reason that it would be important to do the same for each other member of the family. Interestingly, there were two deviations from Pierre's plan. He did not insure his sister, although it is possible she was already married at this point, or perhaps considering the times, a female family member who was not the matriarch wouldn't have been as particularly valuable in financial terms. And the other deviation was that Pierre insured his youngest brother Jasper for almost 10 times the amounts he insured the rest of his family members for. Jasper's life insurance was valued at £3,500. At the time, this was a massive amount of money. He explained to Jasper that it would be beneficial to him because the way life insurance worked at the time was that a young, healthy person could actually borrow against the policy at some point. The Bassons agreed, and the policies were put in place. Pierre had asked his mother to put her name down as the beneficiary and the administrator of the policies, but as the head of the household, Pierre handled the payments, and it would later emerge that within a few months, he'd stopped paying the premiums on all the policies, except one, that of his brother Jasper. The other policies lapsed without the rest of the family knowing, but Jasper's continued on. In February 1903, Pierre invited Jasper on a fishing trip to Gordon's Bay. The plan was that Pierre would head out the day before and book into the Holloway Hotel there. Then Jasper would join the following day. Pierre spent the day before his brother arrived in conversation with Mr. Holloway, the owner of the hotel. Holloway recalled that Pierre had specifically inquired about a few of the drowning incidents that had occurred in the area in the prior months. There were certain areas around Gordon's Bay that seemed to be more dangerous than others when it came to drowning. 
a young man had drowned just a few weeks before at a spot called Reich de Flay, and then there was the sewing room rock, where a strong undercurrent often pulled victims in, and they were never seen again. Pierre asked Holloway if the drowning victims had been washed off the rocks while fishing, and how many bodies had been recovered. Holloway would think very little of the conversation at the time. Pierre was there to fish, and it stood to reason he'd want to ensure his and his brother's safety. Later, though, that seemingly innocuous chat would take on a very different significance. Jasper arrived at the hotel on the evening of Friday the 13th of February 1903. He met up with his brother, checked into the hotel, and the two bedded down for the night. The plan was to head out before dawn the next day and spend the whole Saturday fishing. This, however, is not how the day played out. Instead, at 6.45am, two men met Pierre Besson walking back from the beach toward the hotel. He had two fishing rods over his shoulder and as soon as he saw them, he began speaking. In what both witnesses would later describe as a rather matter-of-fact tone, Basson told the men that there'd been a great accident. He went on to claim that his brother Jasper had been cutting bait on the rocks when a large wave had swept him off and into the sea. He'd heard Jasper cry out, he said, but before he could assist, another wave had hit him and thrown him into a gully. By the time he'd gotten his footing back, his brother was nowhere to be found. Pierre Basson was certain that his brother had sadly drowned to death. One of the men that Pierre encountered that morning was a doctor. He was used to seeing people in the grips of grief and trauma after a horrible accident or injury had stolen their loved ones from them before their very eyes and he immediately felt that Pierre seemed extremely in control of his emotions. The other man noticed something else. Pierre, in his retelling of the awful tale, had claimed that he hadn't been able to offer assistance to his brother because he too had been washed off the rocks by a wave and into a gully. The strange thing was, though, that Pierre Besson was bone dry. Only one of his pants legs was wet from the knee down, as though he'd slipped a little and briefly lost his footing. He certainly didn't look like a man who'd been incapacitated by a monster wave. Of course, although these thoughts would briefly enter the minds of the men as they stood speaking with Pierre that morning, it would only be later that they'd really allow themselves time to pay attention to the oddities of the conversation and how he'd presented. At that moment, the most important thing was to get a search party going. Jasper could have clung to a rock somewhere, or he could be keeping himself afloat somehow, and it may still be possible to save him. A group of local fishermen set out on a boat with Pierre Besson that morning. He explained that they'd been at the notorious sewing room rock, where the undercurrents were so vicious, and as they neared the area and then spent several hours searching around it, it soon became clear that the ocean had claimed the body of young Jasper Basson. Pierre Basson 
returned to Cape Town to break the news to his mother that her son had died. And soon after, he notified the insurance company of Jasper's death and asked that they pay out the £3,500 life insurance policy. Even in these early years of the life cycle of the insurance industry, companies were well aware that false claims and other insidious actions weren't entirely impossible. And they weren't just going to pay out without first conducting an investigation. A few rumours had also started circulating about the brothers' fishing trip that didn't put Pierre Besson in a particularly good light, and the insurance company was interested in these rumours too. When investigators visited the Holloway Hotel, they spoke with all the staff members that would have interacted with either Pierre or Jasper while they were there. Their conversation with the owner, of course, revealed the discussion that Pierre had had the day prior to his brother arriving about the exact spot where he then decided they should fish. And it seemed rather odd that his brother would become one of the very drowning victims they discussed in that conversation. When investigators spoke with the barman at the hotel, something even more damning seemed to emerge. Mr. Cruz had been approached by Pierre Basson in the hours after his brother's death. Pierre had told the barman that he needed a few witness statements to back up his insurance claim on his brother and asked if the man would provide a statement. For his trouble, Pierre said, he would pay Cruz £25. Cruz told investigators that he had initially agreed but when Pierre had produced an already prepared statement detailing an account of events that were wildly different to what had actually happened, Cruz had become suspicious and refused to sign. Pierre had stalked off in a huff, the man said. Based on all of the strange occurrences around Jasper's death, as well as the witness testimonies that indicated that Pierre Besson had attempted to fabricate a version of events, the insurance company soon informed Pierre that they would not be paying out Jasper's policy. Pierre was outraged and convinced his grieving mother to take the insurance company to court. The case would eventually go all the way to the Supreme Court, where a year after Jasper's death, the court ruled in the Basson's favour and the policy was paid out. The family purchased the large house with grounds in Heatherton Road in Claremont, with part of the insurance payout. After Jasper's death, Pierre continued on with his money-lending business and also continued to take out life insurance policies on his clients. But one after the other seemed to have very poor luck when dealing with Pierre Basson. A male client whose £370 life insurance policy was left to Pierre was found deceased on a beach in Cape Town. The man seemed to have been strangled, but there was very little investigation into his murder and Pierre was paid out what he was due. Another client would die on a sailing trip with Pierre Basson when he allegedly accidentally fell overboard and Pierre had been unable to save him. That man's life insurance also paid out to his money lender, Pierre Basson. Then, 
a German couple who were friends with Pierre Besson and also alleged to have loaned money from him while they were traveling in South Africa, were robbed and shot to death. Adolf Beck was another Besson moneylender client who met an untimely end. His body was found floating in a river, and Basson was paid out from his life insurance. Pierre's seemingly murderous schemes would continue on until 1905. He was doing incredibly well financially, but also spending at quite an alarming rate. It was almost as though he felt there was always more where that had come from. Pierre was no longer enjoying living with his family, though, and wanted a property of his own where he could start his own life and perhaps his own family one day. Although if he'd just worked more carefully with the money that was flooding into his accounts, he could likely have purchased a property outright, that didn't seem to be part of Pierre's plans. Instead, he seemed to figure that like everything else he'd acquired up until that point in his life, there had to be a way to get what he wanted without parting with a penny. In 1905, Pierre was introduced to a German farmer named Wilhelm Schaefer. Schaefer owned a farm called Highlands, which was about 25 kilometers from Clermont and near the end of Clipfontein Road. This was likely in the area we now know as Paro, which has since been significantly industrialized. Schaefer was a hard-working man, and very good with money. He and his brother had worked Highlands hard for many years, and as he now neared what he considered his retirement years, he was looking to sell the farm, take the money he made, and set himself and his brother up in a more comfortable home. When Pierre heard that Schaefer planned to sell his farm, he put a plan into action to acquire the property for himself. In December 1905, Pierre travelled out to Highlands to view the property and start negotiations with Schaefer. Schaefer's asking price for the property was £1,400, and he was pretty steadfast on that amount. Pierre, though, was pressing for a much lower price. After hours of tough negotiation, the two men eventually settled on a price of £1,020. Despite playing along, Pierre Besson had absolutely no plan to pay a single cent to Schaefer, but he did intend to acquire his property by his own means. Schaefer was a sharp man, and he wasn't about to be swindled out of his hard-worked property, so he laid down the rules for the deal. Full payments, as agreed, needed to clear into his bank accounts before the legal process of transferring the ownership would begin. The legal side of things was to be handled by Schaefer's attorney, Hermann Hirschberg, and a few days after their initial meeting, Basson and Schaefer visited the attorney together for the first time. There, Schaefer reiterated to his attorney that the transfer should not be implemented until full payments was cleared into his accounts. The attorney said he understood, and Basson parted ways with Schaefer, saying that he would set about gathering the money and have it deposited into the man's account within about a week. This did not happen, though. Instead, 
Basson arrived unannounced at the offices of attorney Hirschberg and attempted to convince the man to start the process of the transfer. Hirschberg refused, insisting that his clients had given him clear instructions and he was not going to deviate from them. Basson tried every manipulation trick he knew, but the attorney was not budging, so he left his offices. It wasn't long until he was back again, though. On his next visit to the attorney's office, Basson claimed that he had already paid for the farm, so the transfer should now be carried out. He now added that he needed the transfer documents to prove to the bank that he was good for a loan he wanted to take out against the property, as he'd used his own money to fund the property payments and needed to offset that with a loan, but the bank wouldn't pass the loan until they saw the paperwork. The attorney said he hadn't received any proof of payments, but perhaps simply to ease Basson's growing annoyance, he agreed that he would start the paperwork required for the transfer and provide Basson with draft documents that required signature. He said he could use these to present to the bank in the interim, and the final documents would be produced when Basson provided proof of payments. Interestingly, there actually was a loan situation that Pierre Basson had gotten himself involved in. Despite already knowing full well that he didn't intend to pay a cent to Schaefer for the property, he'd already come up with a further plan on how to benefit even more from a property he'd yet to swindle out of the owner's hands. After the attorney gave him the draft paperwork, he was able to secure a loan of £500 using a property he didn't even own as surety. This injection of money seemed to keep Pierre satisfied for a few weeks. But in early January 1906, he was back in Hirschberg's law offices. He presented a receipt for £1,020, which seemed to show that he'd paid Schaefer in full for the property. The receipt, of course, was fake, but the attorney did not immediately know that. He did say that he still wanted to contact his client to hear from his own mouth that the deal was done and that the transfer was to be finalised. Basson was irate that he was still being questioned and delayed and told the attorney that Schaefer had gone to Kimberley, so there was no way he could get hold of him in any case. The attorney wouldn't budge and told Basson that until he saw his client face to face and confirmed that he was happy, he would not be finalising the transfer. It's difficult to know exactly what was going through Pierre Basson's mind at this time, and it seems that perhaps in the early stages of this particular scheme, murder had not been on his mind. But I don't really know how he expected to get away with it if Schaefer was still around. Even if he had got the lawyer to transfer the property into his name, his fraud would have been identified because Schaefer was still living at Highlands at this point, and he certainly wasn't going to just accept that he no longer owned the property and move off. Whatever was happening in his mind would come to a head, though, as the attorney made that final refusal to make the transfer complete, and as soon as he arrived home after leaving the attorney's office, he started to make plans to ensure that Highlands would be his sooner rather than later. 
By interviewing people close to Pierre Basson, police were later able to determine that as soon as he'd arrived at his home that afternoon, he'd instructed his gardener to go to a nearby brickyard and bring back a labourer he'd used at the property before. The young man, Peter Christian, was grateful for the work and didn't question Basson's instructions when he told him to start digging a large pit in the chicken run in the backyard. When Pierre's mother asked why a large hole was being dug in their garden, he told her that the hole was for part of a pipe system they needed to improve drainage on their property. They'd previously applied for permission from the local council to lay these pipes, but the permission had not come through yet, so Pierre explained that she'd need to be quiet about it and not tell anyone. Within a week, the pit was completed to Pierre's requirements. While the digging had been taking place, he purchased two bags of lime, which he kept in the hen house. He then visited a pharmacist in Long Street and purchased a bottle of chloroform. With this, it seems Pierre Basson was ready to put his plan into action. On the 22nd of January 1906, Wilhelm Schaefer stopped in at a blacksmith's shop in Lansdowne Road. He was there with his horses, who drew a small carriage, commonly referred to as a trap, and he asked the blacksmith to shoe his horses and make some repairs to his carriage, while he took care of some business in Claremont. He told the blacksmith that he would return in no more than two hours. He was headed to the home of Pierre Besson, to collect the payment for his farm. Wilhelm Schaefer did not return. It would later be revealed that when Schaefer arrived at Pierre Besson's home that day, he was greeted by Pierre and a man called Tobias Lowe. Lowe had been a friend of Besson's for some time. This seems to be the first time he comes up in connection with Besson's crimes, but that's not to say that he may not have had some level of involvement in other instances. Lowe would vehemently deny ever being present, but a witness would claim they had seen him there. Schaefer was taken to Basson's room, where he said they could finalise the property deal in private. Instead, Wilhelm Schaefer was somehow incapacitated, likely with the chloroform Pierre had purchased at the Long Street Pharmacy, and then he was killed. The cause of his death could not be determined, but it's possible he died from a combination of blunt force trauma and strangulation. Basson's mother and brother were in the house that day, but they would later claim not to have known anything about what was happening. Basson and Lowe waited until nightfall to move Schaefer's body. They'd stripped him down naked and then used a door that led straight out from Pierre's room to the garden to carry him out. Catherine Mochella worked as a domestic worker in the street the Basson family lived on. On the evening of the 22nd of January 1906, she was walking home from work when she passed the Basson home, and through a gap in the trees, she noticed some strange goings-on at the property. She saw two men, one who she recognised as Pierre Basson, and the other who she would later describe to police, and which description would fit that of Tobias Lowe. 
the men were using a very low light lamp to illuminate their activities, but Catherine was able to make out their position at the edge of a large pit. On the ground in front of them, just at the mouth of the pit, lay the body of a naked man. She watched, her mouth covered to avoid making a sound as the men pushed the body into the pit. She then heard Pierre Besson whisper to the other man to pass him the bag of lime. Catherine was horrified and ran down the road away from the scene she just witnessed. Because of the time in history we're talking about and the fact that people of colour were regularly targeted by police and not seen as equal in the eyes of the law, Catherine did not immediately contact police about what she'd seen because she was convinced they would arrest her for spying on the Bassons. When Wilhelm Schaefer did not return to collect his horses and carts, the blacksmith became concerned. On the 23rd of January, he went to the police station to report that Schaefer seemed to have disappeared, but the police were not particularly perturbed and basically told the blacksmith to wait longer and sort out his own civil issue. The blacksmith then went to the Basson house, where Mrs. Basson told him that she had seen Schaefer arrive the previous day, but her son had told her he'd left and gone to Kimberley. This, of course, made no sense to the blacksmith, as Schaefer would have had to use his horses and cart to go anywhere outside of walking distance. But with the police not helping, there was little more the man could do than go back to his shop and hope that Schaefer turned up safely. Within a few hours, Pierre Besson arrived at the blacksmith's shop. He'd heard from his mother that the man had been at their house, and told the blacksmith that the reason Schaefer had left the horses and cart there was because it now belonged to Basson. He showed the now wholly confused man a proof of payment for the property that Basson claimed he'd purchased from Schaefer, and said that the horses and carts formed part of that purchase. He paid the blacksmith for the shoeing of the horses and the repairs he'd done to the cart, and left with them. As Basson drove off with the cart and horses, the blacksmith could not help but wonder about something he'd noticed. The proof of payment Basson had shown him was dated the 11th of January. But just the previous day, the 22nd of January, Wilhelm Schaefer had told him that he was going to Basson's property to receive payments for Highlands. He'd been shoeing Schaefer's horses for years, and he knew the man as a shrewd businessman. There was no way he would make a mistake like that, he thought. Still, there was little that could be done. He felt like he was the only one who was concerned about Schaefer's disappearance. But soon, someone else would be asking questions too. When Wilhelm Schaefer had not returned to Highlands from his trip to Claremont, his brother had not been immediately alarmed. There was a lot of work to keep him busy on the farm, and he was sure that his brother would appear before long. Within a few days, he saw his brother's horses and carts appear on the horizon, and relief overwhelmed him. But it was only momentary. As the cart drew nearer, he realized that it was not being driven by his brother, 
but by Pierre Basson. Basson greeted Gottlieb Schaefer and flashed the proof of payment and transfer papers for the property in front of him, just fast enough that he wouldn't be able to carefully examine the signature on the dotted line just above his brother's name. Basson went on to explain that he would be moving into the property immediately, and Gottlieb did his best to protest as the newcomer made himself at home in their house and started going through his brother's paperwork in the study. He told Gottlieb that he'd bought the farm and all its contents and everything now belonged to him. Gottlieb did not believe him, and he didn't think that his brother would have done this to him. He insisted he had nowhere else to go. He and his brother were supposed to purchase a new, smaller property together, but this man was now saying that Wilhelm had received a property payment and just gone off to Kimberley on his own. Basson told the stupefied man that he needn't worry, he could stay at the farm for a few days while he looked for other accommodation. Although the police had initially shown no interest in the German farmer's disappearance, when more and more people started approaching them saying that Schaefer going missing was extremely suspicious, they eventually decided to investigate. They tracked the man's movements up to Basson's house, but as they couldn't prove that he hadn't left there to go to Kimberley with the property payment, as Basson claimed, they found themselves at a bit of an impasse. On the 7th of February, the August newspaper published a short piece about the case, and I have to read this to you because it's just so different from what we might see today. The headline reads, quote, Cape Flats Mystery, Murder Theory Favoured, Information Volunteered, end quote. And the main piece of the article reads, quote, The whereabouts of Schaefer, the Cape Flats farmer, is still a mystery. Every nerve has been strained by the police to elucidate the circumstances that passed from the time that Schaefer left the premises of Hawkins the blacksmith at Claremont, and there is more than a possibility that Schaefer's disappearance will be followed by some startling revelations. End quote. Two days after this article was printed, police announced that they were offering a £50 reward for information leading to the resolution of the mystery. Catherine Moschella had still not told a soul about what she'd witnessed, but when she started to see the articles in the newspaper, which had made reference to a missing man having last been seen visiting the house of one Pierre Besson, it didn't take much for her to connect the dots. Despite a reward being offered, Catherine still did not feel safe coming forward to police and instead decided to send an anonymous note. In it, she requested that police look in the backyard of Pierre Besson, in his bird enclosure. The two-line letter was seemingly ignored and she saw no police activity at the Besson house in the days after she sent it, so she decided to send one last note and then she would wipe her hands clean of the whole matter, she decided. The second note went into a bit more detail about what she'd seen that night. She sent it and waited. 
Although Catherine felt that no one had any clue that Pierre Besson may have been involved in Schaefer's disappearance, the police, of course, had him down as their number one suspect. And the rumours were most definitely doing the rounds. After a few of these stories made their way back to Pierre, he agreed to do an interview with the Argus, saying that he was only doing so to set the record straight. The interview was published on the 10th of February, and later that same day, Catherine's second note eventually found its way to the correct person. Detectives and several constables made their way out to the Basson house. They greeted Mrs. Basson and explained to her that they would be searching her property that day. Specifically, they'd be digging up her hen coop. Pierre was also home that day, but he'd been in his room, none the wiser, when his brother Johann had knocked on his bedroom door and told him that police were digging up the hen coop. Johann would later say that a wild look of despair had crossed his brother's face, and he leaned in close and whispered, It was Tobias Lowe. He told his horrified brother that if police dug deep enough, they would find a body. He then closed his bedroom door. Pierre's brother ran to their mother and relayed what he'd just been told, and the woman rushed to her son's room. Pierre opened the door and told his mother that he was getting dressed to go out and meet the police. He said he would hand himself over, although he'd done nothing wrong. He claimed Tobias Lowe had been responsible for Schaefer's murder. His mother kissed him and told him to be strong, pulling the bedroom door closed behind her. She'd taken no more than a few steps down the hall when a shot rang out. Pierre Basson had taken his own life with a single gunshot to the head. As Pierre Basson's body lay in a pool of his own blood in his bedroom, police were uncovering yet another body, metres away. The hen coop soon gave up its gruesome contents and revealed the body of a man who would be identified as Wilhelm Schaefer. The lime Basson had thrown over the body had already hastened the decomposition process, but the man was still identifiable. Pierre Besson would be posthumously convicted of the murder of Wilhelm Schaefer. Although police had strong evidence about at least another nine murders, including that of his brother, they did not include those in the posthumous conviction. Tobias Lowe was arrested and tried for his alleged role in the murder of Wilhelm Schaefer, but he was found not guilty, as there was insufficient evidence against him. Police found it difficult to believe that Pierre's mother had not played some role in some of Besson's crimes, and she too was arrested and kept in jail for a week. Ultimately, it was decided that the charges should be dropped, and she was released. After Pierre's death, the extensive news coverage had the families of many people who dealt with the man wondering whether their loved one's deaths had been accidents or murders at his hands. The Basson family were left destitute after Pierre's death. He, rather ironically, did not have life insurance on himself, 
and it likely wouldn't have paid out in any case as he'd suicided. Their house and all its contents were sold on public auction to pay back their debts, and people turned up in droves, prepared to pay ridiculous prices for anything that had been in the famous house of death. During the legal inquiry into Pierre Besson's possible other crimes, the pharmacist who'd sold him the chloroform told police that Besson had purchased cyanide from him on two occasions. Police could not link the cyanide purchases to any murders they knew of, so it's entirely possible that there are other unlinked cases, or perhaps he decided against using poison after all. Today, if the murders could legally be proven, Pierre Besson would be classified as a serial killer. His modus operandi and victim count, as well as the period over which he operated, quite closely resemble that of Rosemary Nlovu, although she focused her victim selection almost exclusively on her family members. I do wonder if Pierre Besson would have been caught sooner than later had he been active today, 120 years later, and the honest answer to that is I don't necessarily think he would have. So often in these cases you see one person standing up and forcing police to focus on a perpetrator before anything happens and the dots start being connected, and I think not much has changed in that perspective. Look at Cecilia Stain of the Krugersdorp cult killings and how long her crew got away with their murders. Besson managed to make many of these crimes look like accidents, and if more than one detective in different jurisdictions was working on the various cases, it's unlikely, given the sketchy communication of the time, that anyone would have put two and two together. Also, serial killers were not really something police thought about at that time. They didn't even have a term for it, and it certainly wasn't something they were trained to look for. I do think that there's one risk in looking at crimes that have happened this long ago, and that is that they almost don't seem real. It almost seems like it doesn't matter anymore, or maybe it wasn't that bad because so much time has passed and everyone affected is dead and buried. But those pesky ripples that come off violent crime don't seem to care about time. The generational trauma that's passed down from one set of children to another doesn't magically disappear because the crimes were committed in the early 1900s. And really, we have no idea what type of impact this man's crimes still has today. We don't know if children were left fatherless or motherless by one of his murders, and that still impacts their descendants in some way. We don't know if there were knock-on effects from the brutal loss and then the loss of justice that spiralled and deepened and made it so that Pierre Besson's greed and absolute callousness just keeps getting repeated, even here, today, in 2023. Perhaps the best way for us to connect with these mostly unnamed and faceless victims is to imagine how we would feel 
if one of our loved ones took out a loan to help themselves or our family financially through a rough time and they were sucked into a trap and viciously murdered and the police paid no attention to their deaths and allowed a killer to continue to kill until eventually the climax of his own bottomless pit of greed got the better of him. Perhaps that is the only way to bridge those 120 years. Wilhelm Schaefer, Jasper Basson, Adolf Beck, and all of the other unnamed victims. Rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.